you have your Bibles, turn to James chapter 5 as we're coming now to the last chapter in our somewhat long time sermon series on the letter of James to uh, Christians, Jewish Christians, very early, probably the earliest New Testament book we have, written in the mid-40s-ish, so when you think about it, like 12-ish years after Jesus' death, his half-brother, James, same mother, different father, is writing this letter to Jewish Christians. We've been looking at it uh, for the past few months. We're coming to a close. As you're turning there, a couple weeks ago, I was in Ohio, Sandusky, Ohio, with our family at a fat family gathering there, and uh, we took a day off to, to have fun together at an amusement park called Cedar Point, and it's kind of the, they call it the roller coaster coast. It's the place, I think, the best amusement park in the world when it comes to the, the new science, the new engineering of roller coasters. One of the new ones they have, their newest one is called the Gatekeeper. You got to love the name, the Gatekeeper. I suppose the next one's the Keymaster. Uh, but, but the gatekeeper is that new technology in roller coasters. And uh, so, you know, I'm not a big roller coaster guy. I'll do it to be part of the group. So here's a picture. You know how they take these pictures of it in the middle of the roller coaster ride. They take these pictures. There's me and my son. And you can see that I'm doing Lamaze. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm just trying to survive the thing, you know, spend time with my son. And, uh, and, and, you know, I, my son, you can see he's got an entirely different look. Now, in full disclosure, this was my first time, and this was his second. I don't know what he looked like on his first time. Part of the scariness, I don't know the right word, part of the discomfort of the ride is you really can't see what's ahead. Everything's a turn and a curve, and you can't, it's not like a line of roller coaster where you kind of know what's ahead. You don't know what's ahead. It, it takes you somewhere quick, unexpectedly. So, because this was his second time through, he... There was no mystery to it. He knew he was going to end. It's going to be fine. We're going to be fine. It's all good. Me, who knows? Not so much. And it just sort of illustrates the fact that not knowing what's coming makes us stress in those moments. But, but knowing what's coming enables us to see the now very differently. Knowing what's coming, what's end, how it's going to end, allows us to see even those parts in our life that are stressful and scary very differently. You always wonder, I, I like the science fiction of somebody going back in time. For some reason, that kind of plot always has intrigued me because I've always wondered what it would be like to go back to an age where I know what I know personally and we know what we know historically and how that would change how you would live. You know, what would it be like if you went back to Virginia or Georgia, somewhere, some southern state in 1864, middle of the Civil War, toward the end of the Civil War? If you went back and, and were there, what, what, what would that be like for you? I think certainly you wouldn't be fooled by the short-term value of the Confederate dollar. Isn't that a weird thing? The Confederate dollar. They printed, the, you know, they had the Confederate States of America. They printed their own currency. They didn't use the United States of America currency for obvious reasons. But, but, but the weird story is, is that the Confederate dollar obviously became absolutely worthless after the, after the war. So going back in time, you wouldn't be trying to get all excited about storing up Confederate dollars, treasuring up Confederate dollars as much as you can. Why? Well, because you know what's coming. You'd know what's coming, and soon the Confederate dollar is absolutely worthless, and knowing what's coming enables us to see the now differently, as it would if you were back then. That, that what we treasure up Changes based on what we believe and know is coming up ahead. 
That, that's what the Bible teaches. If, if, if we have a false view of the future, well, that also makes us make stupid decisions in the now. A little great capture of that, a little capsule of that example is the short-lived hoax, the Twitter hoax, where somebody hacked into the Associated Press Twitter account, and they, in the, right in the early part of the afternoon on April 23rd, uh, they tweeted uh, supposedly from the Associated Press that the White House had had a bombing and that President Obama was injured. And of course, as soon as Twitter, as soon as the AP found out they'd been hacked, and it, it took two minutes, they quickly sent out a correction tweet. The White House sent out a tweet saying, no, it's, all, it's a hoax. We got, we got hacked. But in those two minutes, you know, 120 seconds-ish, in those two minutes, well, let's just look at this graph right here. Here's what happened. This is the activity in the stock market, the Dow Jones. And I don't know if you can see that or not, but all those little lines or purchases and the value of the stock market, you can see that two-minute spike in two minutes it lost $200 billion in value in just two minutes because they saw a different future from reality, so to speak. And so it lost the value of their money. When you actually, what you're actually seeing there in that graph is two minutes of seeing a different future and what that different future looked like. It's just kind of a cool thing to me if you think that way about it. We always see the now differently depending upon what we believe about the future, how we see the future. And, and, and that is what James, as you know, James is kind of hardcore if you've been here. That's what James focuses on in this, this last chapter of his hardcore letter. He says the now that you see is based upon what you believe about the future. And that is true spiritually. You, you simply won't be able to live the authentic Christian life unless the real future is your present focus. That's what James is getting at here. And there's a cartoon here that kind of shows us a little bit about why this is important. It's a Charlie Brown cartoon. And you have this thing where Lucy's saying, boy, look at it rain. What if it floods the whole world? And Linus, Sarah says, it will never do that. In the ninth chapter of Genesis, God promised Noah that would never happen again. And the sign of the promise is the rainbow. Lucy You've taken a great load off my mind, Linus. Sound theology has a way of doing that. It's not all that funny, I admit. But it really is a good point. Sound theology, good theology, has a way of taking an awful lot off your mind that's not needed to burden you. James is probably the most practical book we've looked at in the New Testament. It's called the practical how-to of how to live the Christian life. Now, here's the deal. The most practical thing you could ever do in your life is have a good theology. It may sound like a contradiction to you. A good theology is the most practical thing you can do and invest in to change your life practically. Because, see, good theology really matters. And that's what James is saying here in this last chapter. To do all of what he's talking about, you have to have a good theology. Your eyes might glaze over at the word theology. It might sound to you like copying a column out of the dictionary. But theology is that truth about God, that truth in this situation about your future, that is the most practical truth you can have. So let's look at it. James 5, verse 7, we'll look at for now. Verse 7 and 8. He says, be patient. 
Therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. Twice, James refers to, emphasizes a very theological concept. The coming of the Lord. I don't know what comes into your mind when you hear that phrase, the coming of the Lord. It's a very biblical term. It's full of theology. And what James is referring to here is the same thing the New Testament teaches everywhere. You really can't go through any book in the New Testament that doesn't culminate in the teaching of the coming of the Lord. That's why if you've been a part of the crossing for any time, you know that, God, it seems like you guys always talk about this. Well, that's why, because we, we go through different sermons, series of different books in the Bible, and eventually you get to the point where it gets to the point. And so that's where we are in James. We're at the point now in James where he gets to the point. It's the coming of the Lord. And, and, and it teaches, the Bible teaches that that second coming of Christ, the coming of the Lord, is the focal point toward which all human and world history is leading. It, that's the whole point, not just of every epistle in the Bible, but it's the whole point of human history. Now, let me just take a, a moment here for a second and just reflect on something that kind of takes us full circle to the very back to the very first sermon on, on James. I think it's particularly compelling that James in particular is talking about his half-brother when he says the coming of the Lord. Now you just got to think about this for a minute. The Bible tells us that during Jesus' earthly ministry, James, along with his other brothers, were unbelievers. You know, you grow up with a guy, and all of a sudden he's going around claiming he's the Messiah. You're going to have a hard time with that. And, and so his brothers think he's gone crazy. Literally, it says in Mark chapter 3, verse 21, when Jesus, remember that scene where Jesus is at the house and everybody's trying to get in? They take a hole through the roof and lower a guy and he's healing people and all this, the big commotion. Well, that, mo- that, that event, it says here in, in Mark 3, 21, and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. That's not passive language. They went out to seize Jesus For they were saying, he's out of his mind. It's a polite biblical way of saying they thought he was nuts. James thought Jesus was nuts. The Apostle John, who was very well acquainted with Jesus' family, he, he describes him this way in John 7, 5. He says, for not even his brothers believed in him. James, when Jesus was alive, didn't believe in his brother in the believing sense of who Jesus claimed to be. And that's fascinating to think about. Because now we read in James chapter 1, verse 1, this goes back to the very first sermon, James describes himself as James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now how in the world did he get I am a servant of these terms. The Lord, he means God. Jesus, he means deliverer. That was his name, by the way, just Joshua. Christ, the Messiah. James, I'm a servant of God, Jesus, the Messiah, my half-brother. I grew up with him, ate cereal every morning together. What? And so now he's saying in chapter 5, verse 7, be patient until the coming of my brother. <laughs> what? Verse 8, be patient, establish your hearts for the coming of my brother, the Lord, 
is at hand. He even goes on to say in verse 9, catch this, he says, the judge, talking about Jesus, his brother, my brother the judge is standing at the door. So that reflects on how you live. In this case, grumbling, we won't get into that. So James, the half-hearted, unbelieving half-brother of Jesus at one time, now sees Jesus as Lord, as God, as the Messiah, and himself as his servant. He now sees Jesus as his judge, and not just his judge, but the judge of all humanity. Yeah, my brother is pretty much the judge of all humanity. You just have to ask yourself. That's quite a lot of changing of one's mind about a brother in the course of less than 15 years. How does that happen? What happened? What could possibly explain that that kind of change? And it's interesting because we kind of get just one little phrase that tells us what. Didn't mean to, but just things kind of connect. The Apostle Paul in his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, where he's talking about the resurrection of Jesus. By the way, the Apostle Paul was an unbeliever until he encountered the resurrected Christ himself. He says this in chapter 15, verse 7, he says about James, about Jesus, he says, then he appeared to James. See, that little phrase right there is the only thing that could account for that kind of change in a person's thinking. Only something like seeing the resurrected Jesus in the flesh could account for the kind of seismic shift in James' thinking. That changed everything for this once half-hearted half-brother. And so now he's writing a letter. Here we are reading this letter by James some 12-ish years later. And I say all this just as a little aside Because here's the point. This is what really hits home to me. Just as sure as James witnessed the resurrected Jesus, so too he is sure that Jesus is coming again as he promised. That's that's the kind of impact the resurrected Jesus had on James' thinking, that, 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 that what Jesus said is also true. He's coming back just as he promised. What does it mean? The coming of the Lord. What does it mean? Jesus is coming back. Well, Jesus himself. Remember he said this about himself at his trial. This is what got him crucified because he said it to the high priest. He said this. He says, "You will talking about himself, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, the clouds of heaven is not talking about rain clouds. You know, Jesus kind of up there in the clouds you know, doing the silver surfer. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about the cloud in the Old Testament that was God's glory, God's very visible, fearful, present glory. People couldn't bear to see it and be around it. It was God's cloud of glory that Jesus is referring to when something's going to happen at the end. The coming of the Lord is the coming of the glory of heaven. Then we see the Apostle Paul in another letter that he was writing to people, describing this in detail. There's all kinds of descriptions. I'm just going to look at a few. Now, so I'm going to look at, I'm going to look at three passages. Bear with me here. Again, if you're somebody who kind of wants, give me the rubber meets the road, give me the practical, I can't unless I give you the theological. 
So, 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 so you're going to be tempted to, to let your eyes glaze over here, but don't. If you want practical change, you've got to have the theological. So stick with me for three, three passages here. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 14, he says this. This is just his theology. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. Now, he believes that because he saw him encountered the resurrected Jesus. And so, again, everything's based upon that event. Jesus died, and he rose again, therefore, the rest of the Bible. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Because the resurrection is real, we can refer almost in a euphemism to death as falling asleep. They'll wake up. And he'll bring them with him. He says, according to the Lord's word, according to Jesus' word, and you can believe him because he died and rose again from the dead, so he's telling the truth. According to his word, we tell you that the coming of the Lord will come down from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first. This is the resurrection of those who have been believers in Christ who died. They're going to bodily rise from the dead on the earth. And after that, we who are still alive, there'll be some Christians alive when Christ comes back who didn't die yet. The Bible says they'll be changed in a resurrected body in an instant, by the way, somewhere else. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds. And he's not talking about rain clouds. He's not silver surfers. He's talking about the glory of heaven that Jesus talked about coming in the clouds. We'll be caught up with them in the glory of heaven to meet the Lord in the air as, as, as heaven is coming toward the earth. They're not going off into space. They're meeting the Lord as he and the entourage of heaven come to the earth. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Now, this coming of Jesus is really great news for believers. Everything your heart has longed for, now is the day. Now is the day. That day of coming of Christ is the day that's going to happen. But, but at the same time, there's two sides to the coin in the Bible. The coming of the Lord always has two things, two sides of the coin. Good news and bad news. It's good news for those who want Jesus. It's bad news for those who don't. I know that's really unpopular in our day. I get it. It's offensive. But this is just what the Bible teaches. So again, to be an educated person, you at least ought to hear and listen and be able to entertain a thought you don't maybe believe, but to understand it. And so bear with me here. Be patient. Understand at least what Christians believe. And, 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 and listen here what, what the Bible says about the second coming. It's hardcore language. I'm not going to apologize for it, but I just want to at least warn you ahead of time this is what it's going to be. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7. It says about the second coming of Christ, about the coming of the Lord. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. Again, coming from heaven to earth. Now, this is a little different. In blazing fire with his powerful angels. This is the other side of the coin. Blazing fire with his powerful angel. That's, the other, that's how a non-believer will look at the cloud, so to speak. It won't be beauty. It'll be fire. It'll be burn. It'll be dangerous. He will, again, bear with the language, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. In other words, there's, a God, there's good news offered. You can be forgiven of your sins. You can be with Christ forever if you want to. And then people are going to be free to make their choice, I do or I don't. Now, those who don't, here's what happens. They will be punished, bear with me, they will be punished with everlasting destruction. And, and, and here's the punishment. Shut out from the presence of the Lord 
and from, his, from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people. I'll, I'll read on in a minute. Here's the punishment. Those who don't want Jesus get their wish. Those who don't want to come into the presence of God have their sins forgiven by the good news of who Christ is and his resurrection from the dead, death and cross, they get what they want. So when Christ comes, everybody gets what they want. <laughs> it's like Christmas. But there's a dark Christmas. Because what you want can be incredibly destructive. But you get it. So when Jesus comes, everybody gets what they want most. If you want most Christ, you get him. If you want most not Christ, you get not Christ. Forever. Shut out from the presence of the Lord, from his glory, his beauty, Everything your heart has longed for, but you didn't want it. Of his might, on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people, made holy through Christ, not themselves, and to be marveled at, marveled at the glory, marveled at the beauty, marveling at this glory of heaven that we have no idea yet. Marveled at among all those who have believed. And then Paul says, this includes you because you believed our testimony. Believing the testimony of the apostles. Like believing this epistle of James. Is what will cause you to see that kind of future that, make differ- that, that determines how you live now. And then one more verse. Philippians 3, chapter 20, the apostle Paul writes this about that day. He says, now our citizenship is in heaven, and from it, from heaven, we await... A Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. This is the resurrection that's being talked about. This is being part of the glory of Christ. This is receiving a body that is imperishable, incorruptible, eternal, all those things that the Bible talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, for example. So, so here's human history. If we think about it in terms of the coming of the Lord being the end of this age, here's human history in a theological nutshell. Again, bear with me. I'm just going to say something. This is, this is kind of the beginning, middle, and end. Genesis says that, that refers to a time in the beginning when heaven was on earth in a place the Bible calls the Garden of Eden. So on earth in a place called the Garden of Eden was kind of where heaven was a place on earth, to quote a song. And, and, and we can get into the specifics of how the human race was, was charged to spread Eden throughout the earth, but for a time it was a, a local location on the earth. And, and there in Eden is where God dwelt with and walked with Adam and Eve. They would describe it as taking walks in the cool of the day and, and things like that, talking and fellowshipping with God. But at some point, we don't know how long, at some point, The story progresses, and Adam and Eve sin. They rebel, they reject against the will of God. And that sin caused what the Bible calls the fall. It's it's the fractured fellowship with God. This sin, this rejection of the will of God, fractured their fellowship with God. And so heaven withdrew from the earth. God and heaven, in a sense, withdrew from the earth. And from that point on, the entire earth has been under the curse of sin and its destruction. And there's human sin and the human condition. There's disease and our bodies can't fight disease. And there's death and there's tornadoes and earthquakes and all these kinds of things. This is an earth under a curse. Eden didn't get spread. 
And also from that point on, God and heaven have been withdrawn. God has been hidden. Heaven has been withdrawn from the earth. Only at a later stage in salvation history, at some point in Israel's history, there was a little embassy of heaven on earth called the tabernacle. And then later it became the temple. Now you couldn't go in there without preparing yourself or you'd be incinerated. That's what heaven is right now on earth. (laughs) That very dangerous place for sinful human beings. That's why it has to be withdrawn. We'd all die. But when Jesus was born, God became human flesh and came into this now darkened world as heaven on earth. And so there's language like he became flesh and tabernacled is literally the word among us. It was heaven on earth. That's why Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is at hand when he walked around and preached the gospel. He was the kingdom of heaven on earth, near, in our presence. So, so, Through the birth, through the teaching, through the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, a time clock was started that can't be stopped. God began decisively to restore all that was lost in Eden. This is God's plan for humanity. This is God's plan for the earth. And at the end of this age, Jesus will come a final time to bring the glory of heaven back to earth but he'll change us in doing so so that we won't be incinerated. We'll have resurrected bodies, sinless bodies, and unable to sin bodies. But those without that kind of body, it won't go, it won't go as well. That's the second coming of Jesus. So, so it's not that we're going to be taken at the end of this age. We're not going to... At the end of this age, Jesus will come and he's going to bring heaven on earth, but we're not going to be taken out of the earth to heaven when we say we go to heaven. But, but rather, heaven is going to come down to restore and to renew this world forever with the glory, with the love, with the goodness, with the beauty of the glory of God forever. And that fellowship of walking with God in the cool of the day will be restored and everything else that we were meant to be. So the second coming of Jesus is the focal point of God's plan for humanity, God's plan for human history, God's plan for his creation. And part of that plan, the two sides of the coin, is that he will judge and remove from this world in order to restore it. He will judge and remove from this world all sin and all evil of every form and restore the earth with a new humanity of resurrected, restored followers and lovers of Jesus Christ who want Jesus Christ. Most. And, and, and that will happen at, as James puts it, the coming of the Lord. And James is basically saying that no matter how hard being faithful to Jesus is now, the coming of the Lord makes the worst thing that ever happens, it's, it's, it's never the last thing. Or as Tim Keller has said, our bad things will turn out to be good for our good, Our good things can never really be lost, and the best things are yet to come. That's the coming of the Lord, the gospel. The good news is always focused on this future promise. So James says, remember to remember the future. That's what he says. Verse 8, the coming of the Lord is at hand. Have that sense that the coming of the Lord is coming, the time is ticking, the clock is in motion. And so what is crucial is to understand that with the death and resurrection of Jesus and the pouring out of the Spirit to build His church from every language, nation, tribe, and tongue on earth, as the Bible says, that means the last days, quote-unquote, have already been inaugurated. We are in the last days. Christians have been in the last 
days ever since the resurrection of Christ and the beginning of the age of the church. But, and here is the crucial thing, the length of this age is not known. Jesus said he didn't even know how long this age would be. Peter says in 2 Peter 3, it could be thousands of years, he says, because a day is like a thousand years to the Lord. Turns out it has been. What this means, though, is that the coming of the Lord is the next event. It, it, from, from, from the time of the early church to now, it's at hand. That's what, Peter, that's what James means. But Jesus said he will come suddenly and unexpectedly without final signs of warning. Look at this in, in, in Matthew 24, 42. He says, therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. This is, the, this is the view that Jesus wants his people to have. It's almost like your faith needs to have this kind of view to be authentic and to work. So you also, he says, must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. So, so we should not try to predict, according to Jesus, we should not try to predict when Jesus will return. Those who do so end up saying stupid things and embarrassing all of Christianity. Don't do that and don't listen to those who do. They're not, being, they're not listening to Jesus. And, 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 but in a sense, here's the thing. The reason why Jesus wants to have this be ready attitude it's because, in a sense, as James has said, our life is a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes quicker than we have any idea. And then we stand before Jesus Christ. So for all of us, in a sense, it really is at hand quicker than we think. But, but, so on the one hand, it is sooner than we think. But on the other hand, from here to there could be a long time. It's a marathon type thing. And so James says, be patient. Therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts. Why? For the coming of the Lord is at hand. Be patient. That translates a Greek word that literally means long-suffering. It's an old English word, in fact, that means patiently enduring something. Long-enduring. Be long-enduring until the coming of the Lord. In all of our various enduring, in all of our various trials, you know yours, I know mine, In all of our various temptations, you know yours, I know mine. Anything that makes obedience hard. Long-suffering is a determined endurance to wait. Long-suffering is this, because I know what's coming, I see now differently. I know what's coming, and so I'm making a determined endurance to wait for the coming of the Lord. Wait. You know, if you read the Bible, you'll notice that word a lot. Wait. Wait is one of the most often repeated words you find in the Bible. It, it, it may not be the word you want to hear most when it says, okay, now I want to live the Christian life. Empower me. What do I do? Wait. What? No, I want power. I want to... Wait. Wait for what? 
until the coming of the Lord. That doesn't mean we sit on our butt, but it does mean it needs to be something we think about when we think about our now related to what's coming. This is your future. The author of Hebrews says this in chapter 9, verse 27, 28. He says, and just, and listen to this verse, by the way. This is a, this is something. And just as it has been appointed for man to die once. There's no reincarnation. There's no karma that takes us from, you know, different places. Just as it's been appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Quicker than you think. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, that's the great news. Two sides of the coin. Judgment, offer of forgiveness. Judgment, oh, guess what? Jesus took it all for you on the cross. If you want it, if you want that, you can have it. If you don't, you don't have to. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, many, and money, uh, sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin. That's been dealt with. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Huh. That seems to be how the Bible describes a Christian. What it means to be a Christian is to be eagerly waiting for him. Is that you? Does that describe you? 1 Thessalonians 1.9, Paul says about hearing rumors about the people he's writing to, good rumors. He says, they tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And get, get this, and to wait. This is how he's describing what it means to be a Christian, to turn to God, turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait. <laughs> to wait for his son from heaven. Whom he raised from the dead. Now that's why we know he's coming. Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. That's the other side of the coin. Good news, bad news. Depending on who you are. Depending upon what you want most. And, and notice that James says in verse 7, Be patient therefore. See, he's referring back to what he just said. Hardcore verses, but the therefore refers back to what he just said. The people James describes there are the opposite of waiting for the coming of the Lord. These unbelievers to whom James is referring to in the first part of this chapter are the example of what happens when we don't know the future and we just merely live for the now. Let's just read it. And you might read the language. It's very hardcore. You might think, gosh, James must have been Jesus' little hardcore brother. But really the language is from the Old Testament. It, it, let's just read it. James 5.1, he says, Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. And James is hardcore. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Not the kind of guy you want to have a beer with, let's just say that. But, but here's something interesting. The Bible, never con really con the Bible never condemns somebody for being simply rich. There are people in both the Old Testament and New Testament who are rich, and they're positively portrayed. So, so what's the problem? Well, here's the problem. Here's why. Here's why this is all happening. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, 
In some way you got out of it. In some way you kept some back. You kept some delayed some way. They're crying out against you and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts. I love that language. It's so gross and so poignant. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Again, the the Bible never condemns somebody for being rich, but, but it just says it's very hard for the rich not to set their heart on their riches. And the comfort and control and the power that it gives them. See, James rebukes the rich who treasure their wealth with regard only for this world. James rebukes the rich who defraud their workers of their wages in some way. Found a loophole, found an excuse, holding back, not being generous. James rebukes the rich who lived on the earth in self-indulgent luxury and fattened their heart. They filled their heart with their possessions. That's what fattened their heart was their luxury. They fattened their heart with their self-indulgence. They fattened their heart, filled their heart with their possessions. And he also, James rebukes the rich who robbed the innocent and vulnerable of their very lives for self-gain. See, sometimes, and this is one of them, the Bible motivates us by warning us. This is just the way it is. A lot of times the Bible appeals to us by positive, but a lot of times it motivates us by warning us. And that's what this is here. It's, it's like he's warning us, though, out of love. He's warning us, don't get fooled into living for and treasuring up Confederate dollars in the last days of the Civil War. That would be really stupid. See, the typical pattern is the riches of either money or, or, or whatever blessing we have on this earth, just good times, whatever it is, can hijack our heart, fatten our heart away from waiting until the coming of the Lord. That's what these things do. A good thing becomes an ultimate thing. It fattens our heart instead of establishes our heart on waiting for the coming, our Lord, uh, coming of our Lord. I know that's what happens to me probably does to you. So James is saying to live rightly in the now, we have to be continually reminded of what we really believe about the future. We have to ask ourselves the question, what what Confederate dollars are you setting your heart on right now that keep, whatever that is, that keep you, that keep you from establishing your heart on waiting until the coming of the Lord? How? When Jesus comes, how will you see that? When Jesus comes, how will you wish you'd lived instead? Because this is coming. And is that desire what the real you truly wants most? What's fattening your heart? Hijacking your heart away from establishing your heart for the coming of the Lord. See, James says you need to keep remembering to remember the future. Let's pray as the worship team comes back up. Lord, you say in your word to us, you say, be patient. You tell us, 
out of love, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Don't let your hearts get fattened by the good things in this world that are meant to be blessings but not meant to hijack your heart away from the most important thing. David writes in Psalm 27, 14, Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. And wait for the Lord. Help us do that, Lord. Amen.